Jesus teaches us to pray, um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I've always uh, pondered those words because it seems uh, so complex. In fact, uh, Jesus, or I'm sorry, the, the Father does lead us into times of trial. And, you know, really the feeling of being tried and tempted is just very fine. <laughs> so it's very clear that God does not tempt us, but he does try us. God, if he wanted to, because he is sovereign, could lead us into temptation. So when we pray, lead us not into temptation, it's not as though we're questioning God's character. We're rather affirming the strength of his sovereignty and our contingency upon it. We are expressing in a certain way our trust that where he leads us, it will not lead us to the point where we would deny him. That's what temptation is. So we do find ourselves uh, having been led by God into circumstances that cause us to pray this with urgency because it feels like we're real close, um, but we do not want to be in circumstances that would cause our faith to be undermined and turn away from him. So temptation is a pressure. It's a pr it puts great pressure on our weaknesses. Temptation is like water that finds the lowest elevation and it just drips relentlessly on that same place until it corrodes and gives way to this kind of flood of desire and anger and anxiety and hunger and greed and all that, that that's kind of built up against our best intentions. And they weaken and then it pours forth. It's a very deeply human experience, sadly. I'll come back to that a lot when we talk about Jesus' ministry here. We all live with this tension. We have all failed in our resolve. That is why Jesus includes this subject in his fundamental prayer. He wants to make sure it's there because we all struggle in this way. It is also why God engages it with it so directly as a human being. Jesus is the Son of God. He is God the Son. And because of that, Jesus himself was tempted and knows what it's like to be tempted. Now, the context here is important. If you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, you can find your way to uh, Luke chapter 4. It would be helpful. Um, just before this, in the end of chapter 3, we have the baptism of Jesus and a profoundly moving statement, a moving scene and a moving statement where God the Father speaks from heaven, which has been opened, and he says, You, Jesus, are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. I mean, these are the words that every son, every daughter loves to hear from their father. It, it, it strikes at the very root of our identity. We, we almost don't know who we are if we don't hear these words from somebody. It's where we are told we're the apple of somebody's eye. We're unique to a special person. Someone loves us as a beloved one, and that one ultimately is God the Father. And then in chapter, the end of chapter 3, we have a part that a lot of people skip over, but is really important. It's the genealogy of Jesus Christ. 
So one way of kind of reading this statement of the beloved son and then the genealogy is another way of expressing that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And Luke is disclosing to us already the dynamics of that relationship. Fully God, the beloved son, and then fully man through the lineage of Joseph here in Luke. And with that, Jesus is then driven right into the wilderness by the Spirit. Um, uh, Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into this particular place, this desert, which brings us back to that interesting dynamic where we pray that God does not lead us into temptation, but delivers us from evil. Well, here the Holy Spirit is bringing Jesus right into the very grip of the tempter, and yet what we find is the deliverance from evil. And somehow Luke is telling this not just to give us information, but to draw us in to the experience with Jesus. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to conquer evil, and Jesus was delivered. And it's really important to note here that Jesus is not acting on his own but in collaboration with God the Father who blessed him at the end of chapter 3 and now with the Holy Spirit who leads him. You'll always find the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit acting together. And you can see that as an example here. But for Jesus, uh, this is not abstract. He's not just going through motions. Sometimes in biblical language, it can kind of feel that way, that Jesus kind of just sails through. It's very important to note that this is a deeply personal struggle for Jesus, and we'll unpack that a little bit in a minute. It was not enough that Jesus was just called by God to a mission. Jesus has to respond to it. This is sort of an awful confirmation class. <laughs> it's where he was baptized and now he's making his baptismal commission his own by responding to it under great pressure. And he's doing it on our behalf. The location here is significant. It's in the desert. There are a lot of things we could say about that, but one point I'd like to lift out is that it resonates with Israel's temptation in the desert after their liberation from Egypt. You'll note that in our Old Testament reading today, we kind of hearken back to, uh, to that desert journey that begins with Abraham, a wandering Aramean. It's a beautiful poetic phrase, but the desert is a place that God brings his people to try them, and of course, uh, they fail uh, in, their, um, in their liberation from Egypt. Um, God confirmed there also his love for them as a father, God tells Abraham, you are like, or tells Israel, you are like a son to, son to me. But in their place of trial and fear and impatience, they yield to the temptation to worship that false god. Remember how they made the, the golden idol? Because that seemed a lot closer and a lot easier to access. They're afraid. And Moses goes off far away to this mountaintop there to commune with God, and they feel abandoned and alone. And the response to that is not to fortify themselves in their identity as children of God, but to create an alternative, an off-ramp that seemed a lot easier and more amenable to their need. And they paid a great price for that. 
So Jesus going into the desert is going to represent Israel again in a great do-over. And he's going to accomplish on their behalf what they failed to do, what we all fail to do on our own, which is to be faithful to God, which we cannot do in our own strength. So as we start to explore these uh, temptations, they're awful. Um, the first words of the devil are actually chilling. They're horrid. And I'll explain why. Um, he says in verse 3, if you are the son of God, he goes right at it. It's the last thing that Jesus heard from God himself was that you are my beloved son. And Satan wastes no time in attempting to pick away at that very truth. He's just horrid. The last words that Jesus hears are deeply moving affirmations of love and blessing. And here, you can see the first word here, at least in the English translation, and it's what it would be in the Greek as well, if. 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 It's what Satan just loves to do so subtly all the time. You, you, you no sooner think you have a grasp that God might love you, and then all of a sudden the enemy rushes in with this little if. You know, if it were true, and, and I can point out, says the devil, all kinds of reasons why it can't possibly be true. If you're the son of God, it's just kind of chilling. Um, and in fact, I wonder if, you know, he's kind of irritated, the devil, because I'm not sure whether the devil would have known that Jesus was God's son. I mean, he is not omniscient. He does not know what God is going to do. He can suss it out because he kind of has that kind of intelligence, but he's not foreknowing. And I wonder if when he observed in the way that he sees things, that baptism, I wonder if that shocked him. I wonder if it shocked him the same way that all of a sudden God created Adam and Eve, because I don't think he thought of that either. I wonder. I think it disgusts him. I think the specter of Seeing God love someone is disgusting to him. He can't fathom it. He doesn't understand it. He hates it when he sees it. And he's quick to respond if he feels threatened by it. We know people like that. Sometimes we feel like that. It pricks our jealousies or our insecurities. I think the enemy is really upset. And so he says, if you are the son of God... Command the stone to become bread. He has something with food, doesn't he? <laughs> he brings fruit to Adam and Eve. Here we have bread. He's going right after the stomach. But I think there's a reason for that. That's because, like the account with Adam and Eve, um, food is primal. And what I mean by that is we bond with the one who feeds us. That's what's happening with all these babies here. Right? They are... When I say bond, I don't mean they just like you because they feed you. This is right at the very root of your identity is that this one is feeding me. I am bonding with that one. That's why bread is both source of life, but it's also a symbol of our relationship with God. Even in our Eucharist, bread is somehow capturing a fundamental truth about how we're bonded to the very one who gives us life. And so the devil is tempting Jesus to deviate completely from his mission 
as being fully human, as being fully son. Because there's nothing more indicative of being a son than of being fed. And I think that just bothers him because gods don't have needs. To be fully human is to be dependent, contingent, finite, limited. We are not the source of our lives. Our lives are given to us by God, and they are taken from us by God. Jesus prays and teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And in so doing, Jesus is standing decisively with us in our most basic condition. It came through to me in, in conversations I was having with uh, Bill and Sarah Nicholson in our catechism class that Jesus prayed his prayer. <laughs> I never really thought much about that. He didn't just kind of create it and teach us to pray it. He prayed it. He prayed, give us this day our daily bread. What a human thing to do, experiencing with us our most basic need. Here, the devil is asking him to step away from that. And so he says, in effect, Jesus, if you're, this, if you're something special, then act like it. Be the source. Make your own thing. It would have been very natural for Jesus to do it because he is the bread of life. He could have said that. You see how subtle Satan is? I mean, he's saying something that's so close to truth. And yet it's so fundamentally wrong. And Jesus says, no. He says, I will not step away from my mission. I am here to be on the side of human beings and reconcile to them to God. That's his mission. In this mission, I am not the source in the way that you are tempting me to be. Now, to his disciples, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Thank God, Jesus is the source. He's the logos, the word made flesh. And it sounds so true what Satan is doing, but not in Satan's mouth. Jesus rejects the words of God in the mouth of the devil. They aren't accurate. The devil commonly uses just enough of the truth to sound convincing. He, he just plants a little word in our mind that gets our own, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, I, never, I hadn't thought about it that way. All of a sudden, it's not so bad if I think about it that way. And all of a sudden, I'm indulging in the thing that I knew was wrong. They're half-truths. Satan does not understand what God the Father and then God the Son share. He looks at it as a disgusting thing that he can't grasp. And he doesn't understand Jesus' mission. He can't imagine why Jesus would take our side. He's just ignorant in that sense. And so Jesus' response is exemplary. He doesn't even use his own words. He defers to Torah, the law of Moses, referencing Israel's journey through the desert where Jesus is symbolically. He's referencing back to Israel's journey where they failed, but not with criticism and not with disgust and not with shame, but with honor. And he, said, he references Israel's journey in the desert and their experience of being fed and clothed by God. And interestingly, Jesus' first word is man. It's like 
The first word out of his mouth isn't like a self-defense or a, some self-referential uh, kind of honorific about who he is in the face of Satan. He is so committed. It just strikes me that his first word is man. That's why I'm here. That's who I am. Man does not live by bread alone. That's the part the devil can't grasp. The devil tempts Jesus with son of God and Jesus responds with man. I'm a man. I don't live by bread alone. It's an incredible and courageous rebuttal from a person who knows who he is and whose he is. That's why Jesus can say that without fear. Likewise, the second temptation has a grain of truth in the devil's claims. It's just also very interesting. It, and this too resonates with the Lord's Prayer, where we pray for the penetration of God's kingdom into this fallen world. Thy kingdom come. And here, the devil is tempting Jesus with that very thing, the very thing that Jesus came to bring. And the devil does have a kind of authority. I mean, in Ephesians 2, verse 2, He's called the prince and the power of the air. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, we read about Satan's throne. And further on in Revelation 13, verse 2, we have this interesting verse. Uh, to the beast, the dragon, the satanic figure, gave his power and his throne and great authority. So the devil, we know, does have minions, and he has followers, and he has sons of darkness. So in some sense, you know, there's a grain of truth in what the enemy is saying. Of course, we collude with the enemy a little bit too. In some sense, we collude with his darkness. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, and death is the devil's aim. So when he says in verse 6, um, it has been delivered to me, the king these kingdoms, it may be a half-truth, but again, it's not the whole truth. He exaggerates. His power is derivative. He may be authorized to work within certain parameters. For those of you who are familiar with the book of Job, you'll know that the tempter, um, kind of a devil-like figure, you know, he is standing before the throne of God and asks permission to go and tempt and persecute Job. But he's profoundly mistaken to believe that he can grant authority to Jesus. Like, he's clueless on that point. The devil makes a proposition. So maybe he feels like he's a little bit on weak ground, so he's going to try to incentivize it. You worship me in exchange for personal gain. That sounds very contemporary. Um, we, we will exchange a lot of things for personal gain. And in fact, we do benefit from our relationship and our worship of God in the same way that we benefit from any loving and secure relationship. It's good to be in a loving and secure relationship. That is certainly not what the devil is describing, though. He's describing a transaction that is based in greed. Worship is grounded in God's character, not in an impulse for gain. We gain everything when we worship God. But Satan's muddling that and he's appealing to Jesus' greed. And so again, Jesus is faced with a real temptation to step outside of his mission to identify with us in our condition. It's a strong one. The devil's tempting him with a shortcut. 
because we know Jesus' pathway is hard, very hard. And this shortcut would get him right to his goal to establish God's kingdom. But of course, Jesus knows that that's a false uh, temptation and he resists and he remains faithful. And interestingly, again, he does what, he, what we do. He worships God as a human being. He doesn't say to Satan, wait a second, I am God. You need to be worshiping me. You know, he could have said that. But again, Jesus' mission is not that. Jesus' mission is to take our place and live our lives and die our deaths and raise again to reconcile us to God. So he, as a man, is dependent and responsive and grateful. He loves God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, which is the first great commandment. And Jesus obeyed that commandment. Now, Jesus' quotation is also a brilliant rebuttal because it emphasizes the correlation between worship and service. His quotation says, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The devil subtly leaves out the notion of service in his proposition. It's all gain for Jesus if he bends the knee. But Jesus knows that false worship exacts a very, very heavy price. And that's something that we lose sight of when we're in the moment of giving into temptation. We think that we're not going to pay. It's not so with true worship. With true worship, there is a cost of discipleship. In fact, we die to ourselves. We take up our cross and follow him. But in the exchange, what we gain is true life. We lose simply all that is united with the fallen world. And what we gain is all that belongs to the world that will never end. Life and life more abundantly. Why? Because it's not transactional. It's relational. The life that we gain with Jesus is a relationship from the heart. We are the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. That's why it's life-giving. In the third temptation, um, the devil keeps at it, and he is asking Jesus, again, to leverage his resources. Come on, act like a God for crying out loud. Command your armies. Remember, one of the names of, uh, of God is uh, Yahweh Savaot, the God of hosts, the God of armies. I could have called 10,000 angels, and he'll say this to Pontius Pilate, right? Jesus said, I could have called my people. I have people. I have armies, and that's what Satan is saying. Put your money where your mouth is. Prove something to me. Show me that you're special. And Satan also, in a certain way, I think, is kind of making a mockery of the temple, how they appear there. This is a very mystical kind of moment. All of a sudden, they're at the high point of the temple, which is very high. The, the very place where God and Israel are joined in, a, in atonement and worship. And the enemy wants to use this as, as kind of Proving ground. Well, of course, it will be a proving ground. Jesus dies on a cross. But Jesus does not use this occasion to build up his messianic identity to the devil or make a case for his mission. He does not expose the pearls before the swine. On the contrary, 
you're going to see Jesus now start to assert himself here where he offers us a rebuke by way of scripture. Here's a command. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now I think Jesus is drawing the relationship between himself and his father rather close. I mean, you could take this almost two ways. Satan, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Because Jesus is not only human, he is fully God. Tempting one is tempting the other. And I wonder if that's why the devil leaves at this point. He's dangerously close to wrath. I wonder. Because now Jesus is putting it to him and drawing a line and demonstrating a kind of a strength and a fortitude. So it's not as though Jesus is just kind of flopping around here. There's a resilience and a self-awareness and an authority and a conviction and a determination that allows Jesus to be so courageous. I mean, he's our hero. He's fully human at this point. He's not acting magically. He's not pulling his God power. He's doing for us what we can't do for ourselves, but he's doing it as a man with us on our behalf. So courageous, so humble, so obedient. Why? Because his love for us is so perfect. It's so full. There's just no other reason. There's no other reason that Jesus would take our side. For God so loved, loved in this way, for God so loved in this way the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, whom he loved, that whoever believes in him will not perish or fall prey to the ultimate fate of temptation, but have real life, abundant life, everlasting life in relationship with the living God himself. This is what Jesus is standing for. This is what he's demonstrating to us. This is why we're amazed by him. Every step of the way, he could have turned aside because it's so hard what he had to do, and he did not. He stuck with us every single time. He did not get faked out by the enemy. He was not surprised. He was not caught off guard. He's heroic. He's both our savior, and he's also our example. We can ask, because Jesus is fully human, we can ask, how could this be? How is it that Jesus had this resilience? You know, of course, we could just say, and I would have said when, you know, I was much younger, well, he's God. That's not the right answer. I think that just doesn't help us. It, it's, it helps us to know that Jesus is the Son of God, of course, for theological reasons. But here, I want us to see that there are actually things that give Jesus a capacity for standing up against the, the devil like this. And it's because his roots went so deep. I shared on email this week that uh, my uh, sons work for a, uh, uh, a window washing and house cleaning company. And uh, when they would work on the exterior in a house, they would have a solution uh, that they would spray on the outside, either to clean windows or to clean siding. And that solution, you know, had chemicals in it that, that were biodegradable, but still weren't probably very good for plants, or at least I wondered. So I asked them once, how do you protect the plants? Do you go around and cover them or something? 
And he said, no, we, my, my son said, no, we spray them. And I, I, I just assume that means that after you're all done, you go around and spray the plants and get all the stuff off. And they said, no, we spray it before we do our work. I was like, what? And the reason is, is they saturate the plants. The plants soak up the water. And that way, when they spray the house, there's nowhere for the chemicals to go because the, the plants are already fully saturated. I was quite impressed with that as an example of how we can combat temptation. All of us know that the worst way to combat temptation is to try hard, right? I, I don't know about you. That doesn't seem to work very well for me, all right? I'm just going to gut my way through this temptation. I mean, I try that, right? But that's not the long-term solution. Nobody does it that way. Temptation works on us when our tank is empty, when our roots are in dry places. It's when we're upset with ourselves and our lives and we're longing for a kind of a relief, a relief of that pain that's, that's coming from somewhere. I can feel this way as I get older. The temptations actually strengthen as I get older. When I, you know, I thought when I was a young person, they'd kind of, you know, kind of get better. But now, at the age of over 50, you know, now my temptations are compounded with regret, remorse, or loss, pressure, shame. There are all kinds of things that strengthen in me as I get older. It's not easier. And the quick fixes just keep getting better and better. There are just all kinds of resources in a wealthy world with technology to provide me an off-ramp and make me just feel better for a moment to relieve the pressure of whatever it is that I'm feeling at that moment. I may want to be distracted. There's just all kinds of things that I could possibly do that alleviate and give me relief, but they don't. And we all know that temptations don't help. They always make us feel worse in the end. The way to combat temptation, apart from just working it out like that, is to water the roots frequently. That's how Jesus did it. Jesus knew who he was. How did he know that? Well, he knew his story. Isn't it interesting that the reference points for Jesus' quotations come from the narrative of Israel? It's his family story. He knows the family story. Why is that important? Because uh, unique among all family stories, the story of Israel is the story of God. And he knew it well. He knew his story well. He knew his past. He knew the, the triumphs and the tragedies, the light and the dark. He saw how God worked with his people. He knew his story. He knew God intimately and was secure in his relationship. For me personally, uh, one sign of that is he knew he was loved. That's a hard one sometimes for me to swallow. I don't feel lovable, but it's a requirement for me. What I mean by that is it would be disobedient for me to simply cave into that temptation. I have to believe that I'm loved. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but it's because it's the truth. God wants me to know that. God wants you to know that. He wants you to be secure in your relationship. He doesn't want a big question mark over your heart. He wants an exclamation point. You are a beloved son 
and daughter in whom God is well pleased. This now is your story because you have been grafted into God's family, into God's people, and you share in their destiny. You have a new identity. You are loved. You please God. You belong to God's people. You share in the inheritance of that family. We have to experience these things. We have to feel them. We have to feel them. Fighting temptation happens at that root level. Fighting temptation means know the story. Ingest the story. Eat the bread. It means ponder it and ruminate on it. We're going to experience that in our Lectio Divina um, biblical engagement uh, in our Lenten groups, the way that we engage with the story and ruminate on it. It means experiencing God's presence and letting that experience flourish in worship. Worship, you know, is a response. It happens kind of naturally, or it ought to. I know every week, you know, we have to kind of work our way into it because it's, you know, that sort of thing. But worship really is actually, it's what you do when you're like amazed. Oh, that is beautiful. And that's what we aspire to in worship. It's to be captured again by the amazement of Jesus' actual presence and say, wow, that that's amazing. It means walking the pathway of your mission with trust and confidence. We obey. We're disciples. Disciples are the ones who follow. And we do that because it takes us into difficult places. We do that with trust and with courage because we know that he will supply the need. It means creating joy with your people. I mean, as a married person, I know how temptation works when I'm really not together with my spouse. There's all kinds of things that creep in there when that happens. But we all have a constellation of relationships with parents and with children and with siblings and with coworkers and neighbors and friends. And part of our, uh, a part of our uh, saturating the roots are to invest in those relationships and be joyful in them. These are things that Jesus did with his people. And so I want us to reflect on the temptation of Jesus from these two angles. One is to just to be amazed at Jesus. He's our champion. He's our hero. He stands on our side all the way to the end and beyond. And he's also our example of one who benefits from having his roots saturated, as Steve uh, preached to us just a couple weeks ago on the first psalm, that we're to be like that tree planted by living water. And so I'd just like to pray uh, in closing um, from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. It resonates with some of these themes, and it's a prayer that you probably know well, but I'll end with this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named that According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you and us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God and withstand the temptations 
of the one who has already been defeated on the cross. Amen.